Grab your Bible or your uh, electronic device and make your way to Job, the end of Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, the end. And if you are able to, you might also want to make a bookmark in Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. We're going to cover Job chapter 2 today, but I think it's better if we start at the end of chapter 1. I suppose if you and I were better at having an eternal point of view, we would probably not find that our sufferings are quite the enemy of our soul that we normally think they are. We just kind of looked at life from the perspective of this is going to be excellent from eternity. I think that we would welcome them. The Apostle Paul said this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Certainly the eternal point of view is how Jesus lived his life. It's what enabled him to carry out the ministry he did, to make his way to the cross in the manner which he did, to certainly allow himself to be crucified, to be vilified, to die, and of course to rise from the dead because of the eternal point of view, that which is so necessary for us as believers to have. But there's one guy who didn't do such a good job always of having an eternal point of view in the scriptures. He suffered a lot. His name is Job. Job. Last Sunday, or a couple Sundays ago, when we covered Job chapter 1, we saw the kind of sufferings that he went through. We learned the background behind those sufferings that this evil, malevolent spirit created by God, whom we call Satan, the name means adversary, Lucifer, approached God in the divine counsel and asked permission to afflict and hurt Job, one of God's own people on earth. And to the surprise of really everybody, I think, when we realize it, he was granted such permission. And it started out with the kind of things that happened to people in general in this life. They, he lost all of his wealth. He lost his possessions. He even lost his employees. But then it turned up the temperature when his own children were killed in a single storm. And that's where we catch ourselves in verse 20. As Job has heard the news of suffering, of loss, one after another, in verse 20, it says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then this, verse 22, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, if we were to approach this 
and put on our counselor's hats at this point, we would look at Job and we would all want to say, Job, listen to me. I'm going to help you to end this situation right now. Obviously, you've been through a tragedy, the likes of which I've never encountered in my entire life. Obviously, it's true that you're going through vast things. There's something, obviously, that God wants out of you that he doesn't quite have yet. So listen to me, and I'll give you some counsel on how to end the trial. Because secretly, all of us are Job's in this regard. How do I get the pain to end? How do I get the trial to stop? Because it hurts. Now, as we look at the end of verse of chapter one, we, we see an amazing statement by Job, and even the acclamation at the end that he didn't even sin, nor did he blame God. And so because we're such wise counselors, we could tell Job, well, Job, uh, obviously, God is a lot more pleased with you now at the end of chapter one than he was beforehand. Because here you were, you lost all these things, even your own children. And here you are at the end of chapter 1, praising God. And isn't that, Job, what God wants most out of men? Out of these fickle beings, he wants us to praise him even when life goes bad, even when you're in the midst of a trial. So wouldn't we together collectively pool our wisdom and be able to say, God is a lot more pleased with Job at the end of chapter 1 than evidently he was at the beginning. After all, he just praised him after everything was taken away. Hey, I read this from a pastor's website this week. This pastor wrote this, The Lord does not want us to thank him for the bad things that happened to us because he did not send them. He's not the author of evil. We are not to become bitter over life circumstances, but rather to continue and rejoice in the Lord. It's the will of God for us to rejoice no matter what comes. I mean, kind of right, right? Come on, rejoice, right? It's not the will of God to receive evil things as from Him. It is an insult to God to thank Him for accidents and sicknesses and tragedies. He does not send those things to us. The devil does. We're just pooling our wisdom here. This is kind of how we think, down deep. And yet Job says the exact opposite. Who sent these things to him? Look again in the middle of verse 21. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Job knows where these things come from, and he finishes it by saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. So, you know, We all focus on the trials ending, and and when we do that, when our, our whole goal in suffering and agony and loss and difficulty and pain is just getting rid of the pain and just getting the trial to to stop, is that we forget exactly who our God is. And this is why we need Job chapter two. We reason, hey, look, shouldn't God be pleased with Job? After all, he worshiped God after God basically took away everything that was precious to him. Job worshiped God when it went bad. I still have a song going through my head from when I was a young Christian by my my favorite artist of the time, and it was all about when things go bad, praise God. When things go bad, praise God. And don't you know he'll make the bad times stop. 
Sounds good to me. See, the idea is that if you bless the Lord, if you worship him when you're going through a trial, the trial will end sooner. Maybe some of you are here this morning. Kind of got a little deal going on with the Lord. Go to worship God, and uh, pretty good chance that he'll going to have favor on you, mercy upon you. Just do this one thing, right? In the midst of your pain, just tell God how really great he is, and he'll probably bring your trial to an end much sooner. Because after all, we're told what God really wants is he wants people who love the giver more than the gifts, right? What, what we really want so often is just for the pain to end. Hey, isn't that why so many people get into drugs? Not why so many people turn to alcohol and liquor or other forms of entertainment, pornography, all kinds of things as a means to just get rid of pain, maybe the pain of loneliness, maybe the pain of disappointment. See, that's kind of who we are, you know, on the outside. I mean, and even on the inside, just if I could just get rid of pain, I'd be a happy person. My life would be better. I'd have more life. So different than Jesus, right? Never pursued ending pain as a means in itself. So, you know, all of us maybe would have been really good counselors for Job, along with the three characters we're going to meet at the end of the chapter this morning. Those men are interesting. Let's make our way to them. Join me in Job chapter 2. Let me read through the 13 verses for us. Again, in verse 1, chapter 2, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. 
When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And certainly, picking up now, the trial that they saw Job in was very great, and their goal was to end Job's trial, but as you'll see, not in the way that you might think. This morning we'll cover this passage through four headings, all of them having to do with attacks on Job. And the first one is kind of a repeat from last week. It's, it's Satan's secret attack, and it covers verses 1 through 6. So if you're a note taker, you can keep track that way if that helps you to follow along. <clears throat> Again, just like we saw when we covered chapter 1, we come across a certain character in verse 1 whose name is Satan. Again, that's a legal term. It's the adversary. That's literally what it means to be a Satan. That word is also used in the Hebrew Old Testament to speak of other people, not just Satan, but adversaries in general. But here we learn again about this particular malevolent being who comes in the divine council. You see the phrase there at the very beginning, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That is, that is divine council language. That is the idea that God himself has created a vast array of spiritual beings, all in different ranks and orders, and according to the orders and the ways that they've been created with their native intelligence and their own manner of being, they come and they present themselves before the Lord for counsel to discuss their claims and concerns and problems with the way God is handling things. Or for those who love the Lord, for those who are obedient of the spiritual realm, those who are going to oppose those who oppose God. Greatly mysterious kind of a circumstance, one that the Hebrews would have understood probably a lot better than we do because we don't focus on a lot. You'll read in the New Testament that there are beings who are powers, authorities, dominions, rulers, things like that that are mentioned throughout a variety of books, especially Ephesians and Colossians. All of these things tracking upon this idea that there is such a thing that God himself, the great God, the God who is three in one, holds a divine counsel. Challenging for us, isn't it? That he would allow malevolent beings, even in his presence, much more to be able to speak, much more to even be able to pick out people that they want to hurt, and then top it all off with they are sometimes given permission. We see this same divine counsel in 1 Kings 22, where the prophet stands there, Micaiah, son of Imlah, and speaks to the great kings Ahab and Jehoshaphat, and tells them that God and the evil beings that have come before him in divine counsel have begged permission to give false counsel to the kings, which they do, and it's carried out. In Psalm 82, it describes the great divine counsel. In both of those kind of environments, and in this environment here in Job, we see that there are lying spirits in the divine counsel, Satan and my understanding, is the chief of them all. Lying spirits. Almost every word that he speaks back to the Lord is a lie. It's a prevaricated truth. 
Oh, God will ask him a question, where have you come? And then he wangles around it, Bob, going around to and fro around the earth. You know what he's doing to going around to and fro the earth? Looking to find someone that he can afflict. Now these malevolent beings have gained millions, if not billions of followers. Even today, one of the world's great and vast religions, Hinduism, says there are 330 million gods. They didn't get that out of the air, beloved. They were taught these things by these malevolent beings. And you understand, don't you, that none of these beings are in total control. None of these beings have the authority to do anything they want to on God's green earth. And you know, don't you, that there are malevolent beings and there are good beings, and that they have their own battles, described in, for example, the book of Daniel, chapter 10, for example. And you probably also know that the peoples of the world serve these deities in great anxiety, according to whatever kind of traditions and things have been developed in their own cultures, trying to serve these deities in their capricious natures. Even in America, these deities demand your worship. And so they will beat you up and they will do everything they can to tell you that you cannot trust God with your pain. You can trust him with a lot of other things, but when it comes to your pain, that you cannot trust God with. Trust us with it is essentially what they'll say. They wish to steal you from God. They want to fill your life full of anxiety. And they will do everything they can to make you have unceasing anxiety until you are thoroughly and completely in their service, even while professing Christ. They'll get you to do your bidding. And they will make you anxious and nervous. And they will have you do all kinds of behaviors behaviors in your attempts to solve anxiety issues. And then they will even get you to tell yourself, it's so good that I do these things because as I do them, I feel better, so I, I need to do these things. And you'll serve them with a smile on your face, thinking that you're doing something good when in fact you're just serving these false deities. They will tell you over and over again, pain over who you are, pain in your circumstances, are your greatest enemy. You need them to give you meaning and life and purpose. And they'll come along and they'll whisper in your heart of hearts that are already the things that are in your own native heart. And you'll think that they're wonderful. But pain and trials are not your greatest enemy. Jesus Christ, who we've come to worship this morning, his life was absolutely filled with pain and trials, right? Isaiah 53 just describes him as a man of sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. Oh, what a fool! If it had only chosen the better path, he could have got out of so much pain. We considered him foolish. Words of Isaiah. That's exactly what all these deities want out of Job. They want to get Job away from trusting in God. They want to get you away from trusting in God. They want you anxious. They want you nervous. 
in all their machinations, and they work at it continually. But we don't need to do that. We don't need to follow them. Go ahead and hold your finger here or put a bookmark in your Bible like I have it. And I'd like you to turn over to Luke chapter 5 because we need to take a look at this for a second. Because before you are going to trust Christ, you are going to have to be in awe of Christ. One man wrote this, You will have trials and crosses before you will have your crown, and they will not come in the way most suited to your natural wishes. A cross is to be a cross. You will have trials with your church, trials with your family, and trials with the world. But that monster self will be your worst trial. Nevertheless, as the sufferings abound, so also the consolations. As your day is, so shall your strength be. Word of encouragement as we begin to look at Luke chapter 5 here. Now, follow along with me here in the passage. We're going to make our way through this text. Let me begin reading for you. Now, it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. So you have the scenario, right? You've got the Lord in a boat. They push off from land, maybe 20, 30 feet. Then he sits in the position of a rabbi. He must have a powerful voice as the people stay on the beach and as his voice probably uses the natural amphitheater of whatever's behind on the beach right there, probably on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, where there's a number of these kind of natural places where the sound can echo off of various things, whether it's rocks or even maybe a steep hill. That's the scenario. All right, verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, uh, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. In other words, I'm just going to do this to please you. But I, fisherman, you, rabbi, just so we have it straight here, Jesus. Anyways, verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now watch this in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, the theory of religion that men have developed over the years is this. That man started out worshiping many different deities, many different gods, and over time, they decided, you know, we should worship one great god. This is kind of the, what's typically taught in your community college history of religion class. And men developed gods to protect them from the things that they couldn't control, the things in life that are hurtful and painful, the things like the tornado or the hurricane or the storm. And you have to invent a deity who's over the storm and a, 
deity who's over the tornado. And the reason why those deities stir up those natural catastrophes is because you haven't served them as you should. You haven't given them what they wanted. And so it's your fault that that tragedy came and why maybe you lost a child or why maybe you lost your business or why tragedy struck your house. And so this is the theory then that men developed deities to serve over time because they feared the storm. But this is so different. This lays that to rest. If merely the deity was one who can control the storm, then why would Peter, especially down there in verse 8, fall down at Jesus' feet and say this, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He ought to welcome him and say, thank you so much for what you've just given to us. Might have been a month's catch of fish. Big payday. You know? Instead, he feels himself to be wickedly sinful, unclean. Have you ever been in the presence of the holy? Have you ever felt the presence of the holy at night? You're laying in your bed? You ever felt the presence of the holy in a church, in a holy place? It's another theory men have that men feel the presence of the holy, the, what the old theologians called the mysterium tremendum. The idea that every human being has this within them to feel this overwhelming sense of dread in the presence of omnipotence that it makes your soul shrink within you. It brings upon you a unique fear that strikes so very deeply that you feel inside you are disintegrating. That seems to be what Peter is feeling here. When he is blessed and when his own misunderstanding of the Christ is exposed as one who you know, really, you be the rabbi, I'll be the fisherman, and when it's exposed that this is the one who is the Lord of the fish, the Lord of the sea, the Lord of the nets, the Lord of all, his instinct is appropriate. Get away from me. I am sinful. Thoroughly appropriate response. And apparently... He wasn't the only one because verse 9 tells us that his companions felt the same way. And then, of course, they become disciples, don't they? And they leave their nets and they begin to follow Christ. What has gone on? Well, if the idea was that by serving the deities and, and placating them, then you can be okay in life, that all got blown apart here. For Peter was in the presence of the holy. Peter was in the presence of the holy creator. And it pulled him apart until the Lord graciously in the rest of the passage pulled him back together. There is no one who is stronger than God. No series of deities, no series of little G-gods, 
no matter if you multiply them by 330 million. They are not stronger than God. And here what you have is a God who is stronger than storms, stronger than natural catastrophes, able to rule over all that there is, and he is to be feared. And so Peter is delivered then for the rest of his life from having to fear the deities, to having to serve Satan. Even though he will stumble, he'll come back, won't he? And you realize now that this is a God who is to be feared exclusively and none of the other deities are to be feared. Beloved, does your life have a significant amount of anxiety in it? Then you serve the deities and not the true and living God. I don't say this to minimize your pain or your trial. I merely tell you that these things are real, spiritually speaking. You were created for your creator to rest in him. You are not strong enough to bear the trials and the sufferings of your life. You weren't made to. You were made to rely upon God who will nurse you and carry you like a mother carries her child, like a father counsels his son, will shepherd you all through your days. Good? Let's go back to Job chapter 2, shall we? Job chapter 2. Look in verse 3. Look what God says. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Wait, 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 wait. Servant Job? Job's doing nothing right now except sitting on the ground and worshiping with a torn robe. How is he serving God? He's not producing anything. He's serving God by his suffering. He's serving God by his suffering and trusting God in the midst of that suffering. He's not serving God by giving money. He's not serving God by doing some act of of ministry. He's serving God in his suffering. And then what you have in the rest of verse 3 is a repetition of what we saw in chapter 1 with the same four delineations of how great Job is. But listen, this is from the mouth of the Lord who in verse 3, there's no one like him on earth. Isn't that amazing? That's like Christ. There's no one like him on earth. He's like, a, he's like a Christ. And then it goes on. It says he's a blameless man. He's an upright man. He fears God. And fourth, he turns away from evil, the very same things that were said of him twice in chapter 1. Remarkable. God's own testimony to Job And then look at the end of verse 3. This is an important statement here. There's no one. Is it the end of verse 3? It's you have incited him against me without cause. The end of verse 3 there. Although you incited me against him to ruin without cause. Beloved, Satan's goal with Job and Satan's goal with you is not merely to tempt you to get you to sin. It's actually not all that hard for us who are of the flesh and our fallen in Adam. We sin every day. The real goal of Satan is to ruin Job. Do you see the word ruin at the end of verse 3? And that is his goal with you. He doesn't just merely want to tempt him and test him. Satan wants Job destroyed. That's what he wants. To kill him. For him trusting in God and not in him and his minions. 
And here it is. Remember, Job knows nothing about what's going on, how Satan is provoking the Lord in all of this and mentioning him by name. And now here, isn't this the shock of it all for us who love the Lord? Because in verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. I mean, it's just so amazing. Job simply says to the Lord, oh, in verse 4, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. Touch a man on his skin. You'll get him to do whatever you want. No problem. They're so fragile. They're so frail. They're so easily tempted. Everything that I've done so far tempted you, God, to do to, to Job with all external stuff, but let's go internal, and then you'll bend and break him. And you'll see that the only reason men serve God is for their own benefits. And it's just so amazing that God allows for these things. Because, beloved, God not only allows the pain in Job's life to go on, he allows it to be increased. If it was you and me writing the book of Job, we'd never write this, right? we would have, and God struck out his finger and with a single lightning bolt zapped Satan and annihilated him from all existence. Because our goal is to end the trial, we can't imagine why would God want Job, who is sinless according to his own testimony in this matter, to have even more pain this makes God look so bad, doesn't it? This is really, this is, this, this, this is the PR department behind the Bible really falling on their faces, don't you think? But this is real. This is true. Now, let's look at Jesus Christ. Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what, but, but, but what you will. Amazing resignation to the plan of God. I mean, we, like him, would all want to get out of the trial. I'm not so sure we would all want to say, but nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. But I would say that his grace in you will make it so. See, we have to learn something here, don't we? That there's something more important than pain relief to God. He's not really the God of Bayer and anison and Tylenol and naproxen, is he? Which is somehow becomes what Sunday morning worship can become for many of us. It's a way to apply pain medication to my life. I'm not against, I, there's, there's no benefit in pain for pain's sake. I promise you that. There's no benefit in pain for pain's sake. But there is certainly benefit of pain when it's a tool that's used to display God in his own glory. So let me back off on this a little bit. Where do you suppose right now God's maximum display of glory is? Where is he right now maximally displaying his glory? Okay? I'll give you a couple of... Uh, Choices that, in case you're still sleepy here, heaven. That's the place where he's maximally showing his glory. Or maybe you were saying nature. 
The realm of nature is where he maximally displays his glory. Well, the answer is neither of those right now. Not even heaven. The answer of where God maximally has displayed his glory is in the cross of Jesus Christ. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, that God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, he's talking there about the knowledge of God in the face of Christ hanging on a cross, bearing the sin of the world. Very much God, very much sinful, sinless man himself, and yet dying out of love and bearing wrath. Where is God maximally displayed, beloved? It is in the cross. That is the one place of all eternity where for now he has focused the maximal display of his love, his wrath, his kindness, his tenderness, his omnipotence, and every other attribute that he has granted us to know is focused sublimely on the cross. That's the place where he maximally shows himself, and it is a place of incredible pain and suffering. So we can be sure in our own sufferings and our own fears for what may come in the future that our God has already been there, not just intellectually, but experientially. Does that make sense? He's traveled that road in his son. Pastor Joey preached on it last week from John chapter 12, God's glory in the cross. Nowhere does God reveal himself more fully than in the cross. Even the great church father, Athanasius, said this, even on the cross he did not hide himself from sight. Rather, he made all creation witness to the presence of his maker. He most fully and perfectly revealed himself on the cross. So if you want to see God, look at the cross. And look at the cross. Well, that's our first heading. That's the first attack on Job, that the secret attack from verses 1 through 6 that Job doesn't know about. Let's kind of go on because there is something better than pain relief. And it's really knowing God in contentment, even if you should be the subject of Satan's secret attacks. So the second heading here this morning is this Satan's personal attack. Just verses 7 and 8. Let's read those. Then, and I mean then, like right away, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. There's no wait time here. Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord, and he instantly and immediately attacks Job so much different than chapter 1, where they waited for a specific day. No, right away, when thou Satan, in his malevolent character and his hatred for Job, and by the way, this is his character, when you're suffering, when you're hurting, is when he hates you even more. He doesn't back off. He makes more intense. It shows his increased hatred for Job. And notice also that it is direct. It isn't other forces like in chapter 1, but it is Satan who smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown 
of his head. The idea of being top to bottom is the idea that virtually all of comfort, all comfort in Job's life is gone. And it ends so sadly in verse 8 with him sitting among the ashes. There are three levels of humility attached to ashes. Let me explain those quickly to you. There's the familiar phrase of, of sitting in sackcloth and ashes. That indicates in the Old Testament repentance and humility. And it's often coupled with fasting. That's the first level. Then there's a second, more intense level when the mourner or the penitent takes ash and they throw them up in the air in order that they come back down and land on himself, especially on his head, in order to show himself as one who bears disgrace. Shameful. I am a shameful individual because of my sin. And so there's a throwing of the ash up in the air in order that all I may be covered with is simply death, that which has been burned. And then there's the third and most intense form of mourning with ashes. And that is when the mourner sits among the ashes like it has at the end of verse 8. This man, then we know, is thoroughly abased. Misery and shame. And it is so sad, it is meant to elicit your pity. And everything about Job is broken. Even, in verse 8, a potsherd, which is a piece of a broken pot. That's the only thing in his life that now brings him comfort. A piece of broken, dry, clay pot that he can use to scrape the fascinating boils that are on his body. Now we'll see if he will serve God for God's sake. Or will he only serve God for what he gets out of life? Because what life is is comfort. Life is fun. Life is health. Life is jokes. Life is the stuff of this world. You ever think about it? When you trusted on Christ, you trusted on him for eternal life. Christ says in John 10, I give them life and life more abundantly. He's putting it against the way life is in this world. And not biological life, but that which sustains your spirit. The life that comes from God is a different kind of life. It's a life that sustains you even in the midst of suffering and hardship. It's not based on comfort, fun, or physical health. It's based on your relationship with God. Well, here you go. Here's Job. God's taken away almost everything. He's allowed Satan to do it. He's only withheld from Satan the power to kill Job. Well, okay, where are we at now in the story? Well, at least we can say, okay, that's really, really bad. But thankfully, comfort, at least God has left him his wife. Oh, wait. That's going to be our third heading. Verse 9, follow me there. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And repeat it again, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We find out here that Job's wife has a problem with God. Just to put it plainly, she just has a problem with God. I mean, she just wants him to be better. And that's her ideal. 
Oh, well, that's too bad. You know, she's probably thinking to herself, my husband, Job, he's done everything he can to please God, to placate God. Every time the kids get together, he does that funny sacrifice thing in the morning, and he, he, he's really so godly. He's such a godly husband. Man, but God, God hasn't lived up to his end of the bargain at all. She's ticked. Isn't that the reason why her husband, she's thinking, gave those offerings to placate this deity so that his children would not get killed? And you can see her even thinking, well, a lot of good that did. And she's not angry with Job. She's angry with the Lord for allowing these things to happen. I got to say, too, at one level, every one of us who's a parent understands, right? But certainly the way that the story is told here is that her problem is with God. Look at her counsel. Curse God and end up doing what? Doing what Satan wants to do to Job. Die. Just like Satan wants to kill him, now even his wife wants him to die. This is the beginning of the human adversaries to Job. And I want to say this, as you're about to look in the more kind of an adversarial reality, is that God raises up adversaries. Sometimes even in your own family. Sometimes even in your own wife. I'm going to have a great ride home, aren't I? No, no my wife is the biggest blessing in my life. The biggest blessing in my life. Let me give you a quote from Martin Luther to get you to forget that last statement here. This is what Martin Luther wrote. We little know how good and necessary it is for us to have adversaries and for heretics to hold up their heads against us. For if Serinthus had not been, then St. John the Evangelist had not written his gospel. But when Serinthus opposed the Godhead in our Lord Jesus Christ, John was constrained to write his gospel and say, In the beginning was the Word making the distinction of the three persons so clear that nothing could be clearer. He goes on, So when I began to write against indulgences and against the Pope, Dr. Eck said upon me, that was the guy who wrote mostly against Luther, Dr. Eck. It sounds like you're going Eck, but it's actually E-C-K. And he aroused me out of my drowsiness, Luther says. I wish from my heart this man might be turned the right way and be converted. For that I would give one of my fingers. But if he will remain where he is, I wish he were made Pope, for he has well deserved it, for hitherto he has put upon him the whole burden of popedom in disputing and writing against me. Besides him, they have none that dare fall upon me. He raised my first cogitations against the Pope and brought me so far, for otherwise I should never have gone on. He's basically saying, look, thanks to this guy, Dr. Eck, I became the great reformer I am. That's what Luther is saying. Okay, so now we know that his wife is kind of an adversary to him, and now we can say, well, phew, you know what's great? We can at least say that there's three comforters to come to Job, but this is going to be our final section here. We had the Job's wife attack, and now we're going to have the last one, the final attack. Join me in verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and to comfort him. 
Now, we don't know a lot about these men. There's little bits and drabs in other places in the Old Testament. But they were almost certainly great men like Job. And it looks to us that they are well-meaning. After all, at the beginning of verse 11, they are called what? Friends. And they hear of his adversity. The word is ra'ah for evil. And they sound nice and they sound compassionate. Aren't these the kind of friends that you wish you could have when you were going through great trials? But something in here, beloved, is rotten. Look closer at verse 11 toward the end. They made an appointment together. Sounds innocuous, harmless, some random detail perhaps in the account. But if you have a friend in great agony, do you first get together with other friends first and meet? Or do you go immediately to your suffering friend? The word here for make an appointment in verse 11 can also mean to agree together in conspiracy. This word is used in the book of Nehemiah when the rulers of the surrounding area had wanted Nehemiah to make an appointment and when they made their own appointment. It describes kings who at the end of time in Psalm 48 assemble together in conspiracy against the Lord. Two times in the book of Numbers, this little phrase here, make an appointment together, is used from God's lips to speak about the Israelites who are conspiring against him. What happens here is that these three men provide a final attack on Job and it lasts all the way until chapter 32 in the book. Think about what these three men did and think about what they didn't do. What did they do? Okay, it says in verse 11, actually let's read verse 12 and 13. This is what they did and didn't do. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Okay. They wept, they tore their robes, they wailed. Verse 11 even says that they came, and they came to sympathize and comfort him. But what did they not do? This they did not do. They did not speak to comfort Job. Comfort is an action to be done. Joseph, the brother, speaks comfort to his brothers when he finally reveals himself to them down in Egypt. Boaz comforts Ruth as she lays at the end of his bed in hopes that somehow she'll have a protector in Israel. Joab tells David, you better go out and comfort your troops by speaking to them, otherwise they're all going to defect. Hezekiah spoke to the troops when the great general from Babylon yelled at them on the wall and told them that God, their God would not protect them. The great king Hezekiah spoke words of comfort to them. Comfort is an action to be done. Empathy, maybe not. Maybe empathy is sitting But if you go to comfort someone, you do need to speak to them wisely, maybe a little bit, but something that lets them know your heart is with them. You should have expected here these three friends to do the same thing, to speak to Job, to comfort him, but these three men say nothing. 
And as a result, beloved, that is our first clue that what they are doing is unbelievably condescending and rude to a suffering man. Empathy can be silent, but not comfort, and especially not for, as the text clearly says, seven days in verse 13, and seven nights. That's a long time. So they claim they're comforters, but they came in conspiracy to do something else. That's why they met together ahead of time. Back in those days, they couldn't call each other on cell so that they could try to get together and say, hey, where do you want to meet? They had to send messengers back and forth and arrange it. It would have delayed the amount of time and getting to Job by at least a month. And then they came to Job. These three men are Satan's final attack to ruin Job. And when I say ruin, I mean to kill him. That's why they say nothing. To bring the pressure upon Job to say your life has no value. We don't even speak to you. And it could be that they had already agreed on how to split up all the remaining assets of his vast estate. I wonder which one would get the wife. (laughs) So here's the question of the book of Job as we close it out here. Can God sustain Job through this onslaught of attacks? Can God sustain a man who has no comfort in this life? Will God sustain you through your trial? I tell you, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. He'll do it with Job. He'll do it with you. And he'll do it in a manner that will reveal himself to you. What have we then to do, brethren, but to trust in God? Let's pray. And our holy heavenly Father, To thee we want to come and trust. Acknowledge all the brilliant goodness that is within your own nature and also to fear that there is within you the means and mechanism by which we can be tempted even from the evil one. Hurt, destroyed. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy, but you came that we might have life. And if your life means that we have pain and sorrow and insignificance, then if it means that we come to know you truly, thereby we are the winners. And as the apostle said, the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the way that you lived your life here on earth, trusting in your heavenly Father. And now we commit ourselves resign ourselves and repent where necessary so that we trust in you likewise. In your wonderful name, we trust. Amen.